Our reading from the Old Testament this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 52, beginning with verse 7. Isaiah 52, 7 to 10. And our sermon text following that from Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 45. Isaiah 52, 7 to 10, followed by Luke 9, 37 to 45. Let's give our attention to the Word of God. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And it came about on the next day that when they had come down from the mountain, a great multitude met him. And behold, a man from the multitude shouted out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and as it mauls him, he scarcely leaves him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him, about this statement. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would now enable us to come better to know you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ whom you sent. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Today's passage from the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel offers us a striking study in contrasts because it places the all-glorious, all-sufficiency of the only begotten Son of God side by side with the deeply complicated needs of another only Son, 
The brilliance of Christ's glory seen by a few up on the mountain above is followed by the deep dark shadows of human troubles down in the valley beneath. The open majesty of his saving work in the life of one little family with the mystery of his approaching death. You may remember from last week how there on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord's true human nature, with which for over 30 years he'd cloaked his equally true deity. This humble garb of mere humanity was momentarily and purposefully drawn back. As the law and the prophets and ultimately his Father in heaven testified of his own glorious person and work, and there on the mountain the three disciples with him beheld his glory, Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter, James, and John, with their own eyes, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. With their own ears, heard the voice borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jarred so suddenly as they were out of sleep, they'd seen and heard it all, their senses sharpened by the bright, vivid reality of what was unfolding before them. There on the mountaintop in that dark night, the brilliance of God's glory suddenly shone from the face. In fact, it shone from the whole person of Jesus, the Christ of God. Now that all happened up on the mountain. The very next day, they come down from the mountain and they find themselves in yet another ocean of humanity, teeming with human needs. It's almost as though that retirement ministry that he had hoped to uh, pursue were suddenly over. It's almost as though they're back in Galilee because a great crowd met him. Now he really hadn't been gone all that long, had he? Just the day before, he'd taken Peter, James, and John with him up the mountain to pray. And the other nine disciples remained below. But things down in the valley don't stand still while you're up on the mountain. For a wide variety of reasons, some very good, others very evil, everyone still wanted to see Jesus. And while they're out and about looking for him, this crowd stumbles across the nine disciples left below. Nine disciples who, you'll remember from the opening verse of this chapter, had already received from Jesus power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now this power and authority over demons and diseases hadn't ever been rescinded. That power and authority had no expiration date. No. When the Lord Jesus Christ entrusts a person or an institution with power and authority to roll back the powers of darkness and promote the glorious kingdom of God, he gives it with the intention that that authority be received as a trust, mixed with copious faith, and then used. You don't frame these credentials and then hang them on the wall. Lawful power has a lawful purpose in the real world. When you leave batteries unused on the shelf, over time they lose their power. Left in an unused flashlight or other tool, they corrode faster than you'd think. 
They leak, they swell up, they finally destroy the tool they were meant to make useful. And the object lessens this. Lawful powers that are granted to us are meant to be used and applied and leveraged for the greater good of others and the greater glory of God. So this great crowd meets Jesus and the three disciples coming down the mountain where the very night before he'd been transfigured and the Father's voice had come out of the glory cloud. You remember saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. So down the mountain they come the next morning and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my Son for he is my only child. And the boy was in a very bad way. His dad describes the symptoms in verse 39, but it's only a summary. Matthew's account adds that as an epileptic, the boy would often fall into the fire or the water, that he suffered terribly. Mark adds that the situation was of long standing and that the boy also was unable to hear or speak. He's in a bad way. We live our lives, of course, each privately dealing with all these intricate details and complications of our own family pains and trials. We spend our days keeping a close eye on our loved ones, monitoring them, keeping them safe, watching them around the fire, watching them at the water's edge, supporting them, loving them, trying new ways to reach them when mere words can't. Sometimes we have an opportunity to spell out our troubles to others, as this father now did. But for the most part, life in a broken world is a matter of quietly adapting to the problem and by grace overcoming. It's a matter of persevering in hardship. Beloved, in your own set of troubles, may the word of God this morning encourage you to seek Jesus. Lost at night in the deep woods of our own personal and family distress, we do well to find ourselves in an open glade where far above the trees that hem us in we can see the stars. And by the stars we can orient, uh, reorient ourselves. This book before us represents that open glade. And by it we're able to see Christ the morning star. The best of our fellow valley dwellers can't help us in these troubles, can they? Remember that woman with the 12-year hemorrhage? Physicians couldn't help her, could they? Physicians only left her financially broken. And then across the lake from her, many had tried, but none could tame that tormented garrison demoniac. And as for this Poor father of the boy shattered and battered by the demon. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not, he said. Now, there are those who find Jesus' words of verse 41 troublesome. Could such hard words as these actually have come forth from the lips of one who was always so full of grace? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, they could, and yes, they did. And yes, they still do. It's not without reason the gentle shepherd carries with him a rod and a staff because sheep need 
not only protection, they also need correction. And for our correction, Jesus tells us the unvarnished truth about ourselves. It was a faithless and perverse generation into which the Savior of the world was born. It was a faithless and perverse generation to which he ministered the gospel for a few short years. It was a faithless and perverse generation that very soon was going to crucify him. It was this faithless and perverse generation out of which he'd called twelve young men to be his and to be holy and to be helpful both in his presence and in his absence, because ambassadors represent their sovereign. Always they do. That's their job. Disciples represent their master. And these disciples had already moved from the learning stage of their education to the doing stage. Already they'd been out and about. Already they'd been proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing, casting out demons. Already they had at their disposal everything that apostles would need to expel the demon tormenting this man's only son. So why did they fail? Luke doesn't give us an explanation, but Matthew fills us in. Matthew, you remember, was there himself one of the nine on the receiving end of that rebuke. And he remembers it this way. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Their job as apostles, their job as ambassadors, after all, is to represent their sovereign, for whom nothing will ever be impossible. The rebuke of faithlessness naturally grabs our attention in such a passage as this, but the glory of Christ, seen visibly the night before on the mountain, shines out once more in a practical sense in verse 42. At the very moment of yet another final demonic attack, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Do you see all the grace and goodness that's included in that one little sentence? First, with a boy, uh, with a word, he rebukes and casts out the demon that for long years had tormented this boy. At the word of Christ, he's free. Then he proceeds to heal the boy of the epilepsy that Matthew's account mentions, and the deafness and inability to speak included in Mark's account. Jesus heals the boy. And he's healed completely, instantaneously. And then he does one more thing. He gave him back to his father. He gave him back to his father. The surpassing glory of Christ, the majesty of God, is evident not only in his cleansing and healing of persons, but his cleansing and healing of families. 
of relationships. It's the promise of such relational healing that seals the Old Testament, whose last words speak of the restoring of father to son and son to father. When we're cleansed, when we're healed, it's so that we might be returned to those we love, returned to those who love us. One's reminded of God's ancient covenant made with Abraham. I'm blessing you. Now you become a blessing to others. He restores what once was hopelessly broken. Small wonder then that all were astonished at the majesty of God. You remember I began this morning by pointing out some of the stark contrasts we encounter in this passage. The brilliant light of transfiguration seen up on the mountain and the deep darkness felt down in the valley. The only begotten Son of God sufficient for every need and the only begotten Son of another Father, this one afflicted in so many ways, afflicted and despairing. There's one more contrast that Luke draws in verses 43 and 44. It's the contrast between the glorious majesty of God at which all were then marveling and the mystery planted once again in the minds of these faltering disciples. Let these words sink into your ears, he says. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, it's not the first time they're hearing this mystery, is it? They'd heard it from him at least once before, a week earlier. There's Caesarea Philippi, right on the heels of their confession of Jesus as the Christ of God. That time when he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So it's not the first time they're hearing it, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. But this is the irony of it all. He's speaking plainly to them. He's laying it out for them. He's telling them exactly what it is they should expect as the glorious kingdom of God and the redemption of his covenanted people unfolds before their eyes in the weeks and months ahead. He's speaking not in dark parables. He's speaking plainly. And yet to young men raised with these stubborn Jewish presuppositions about God, men, and the world, it all seemed a riddle. It all seemed to be a mystery yet unsolved. But he was speaking plainly. Contrasts, conundrums, even apparent contradictions that the glorious Son of Man to whom every reader of the prophet Daniel knows was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that this one should be delivered into the hands of men? That he should suffer? And die? It's just too much to take in. We know you, Jesus. We see your grace and your power and your majesty at work before us every single day. All of us do. Some of us just now beheld your majestic glory here on this very mountain. So put aside all this talk of suffering. 
Give us the kingdom and the power and the glory. Give it to us without all the fuss and muss, without all the pain and expense. We want you as you are. We want us as we are. We want it all, and we want it now. It's good for such disciples as these that amidst all the contrasts and conundrums they experience from day to day, one solid feature of their life never seems to change. Whether on the mountain or in the valley, whether by day or by night, enshrouded in darkness or basking in the light, the Lord Jesus is with them. He's with them, steadfast in His grace and mercy and peace. Steadfast in His love and patience toward them. It's a patience very soon to be tried by young men who prefer to gain the crown without the cross, as we'll discover in the weeks ahead. Amen.